You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. All right, so we are going to start right, we're going to dive right into verse 15. And so it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so we see that right from here, what Paul's laying out is that God himself is invisible, right? Like no one can see God. God is invisible. But yet we see in this passage that Jesus, so this is anytime we see he here in Colossians, is he's talking about Jesus. And so Paul is saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So God is invisible. We cannot see him, but Jesus is the image of of our invisible God. God has revealed himself in his son Jesus. Why? So that he can have, so that we may know him and live with him, right? This is why one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And so we see that God is not just this God, as we'll see later, who just set the world into motion and left it, but God is a personal God. God is one who knows our sufferings, who knows what it means to feel betrayed and, and backstabbed. Like Jesus, God knows this through Jesus because Jesus is God. And so we see from the beginning that if you want to see God, if you want to know God, if you want to believe in God, if you want anything to do with God, it has to be through Jesus, because that is how God has revealed himself so that we may know him. Sure, Romans says that we can see him, right? We can see his, his, you know, some of his attributes as we look at creation, but to know God on a, a personal level, to know God differently than just knowing facts about something is you must know Jesus. And this is what Paul is telling us today. If we go to John 14, verses 7 through 10, it says this, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is Jesus talking. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And so if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. If we know Jesus, then we know the Father. If Jesus lives in me, so does the Father. And Jesus is God in the flesh. And so then Paul says back in verse 15, right, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And so this doesn't mean that Jesus was created, right? If you go to many false religions, they'll say that Jesus, they'll try to argue using this verse saying that, see, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus isn't God because he was created. And so they would say, you know, Jehovah's Witness, for instance, would say that Jesus was created by God the Father. And they don't even believe in the Trinity itself. And so they would say Jesus was not just there, but rather he was created. But what we see here, And what we'll see later is that nothing created Jesus, for Jesus was before time began, and Jesus will be here after time ends, right? That Jesus always was and always will be. And so if we go to John 1, verse 1 through 2, or verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
was God. And so we see right there, right, in the beginning was the Word, and John is referencing Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and Jesus is God. And so we see that Paul is trying to show the the people in Colossae, hey, these false things that you're hearing, these things that will try to pollute your minds and try to make you think less of Jesus, you must refute those and realize who Jesus is. Because if you know Jesus, right, then you have the Father, and then you know the Father. And so Paul is trying to say, hey, it's all about Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus, and Paul is just pulling, oh, I'm so excited to keep going. All right, where are we at? All right, so rather, instead of saying Jesus was created, what is this verse talking about? It's this verse saying that he is the firstborn means he has preeminence, meaning he has the highest authority, meaning he is the highest ranking, meaning nothing is over Jesus. He was not created, right, as we have already read, but instead, as we'll see, he created all things. And so in the universe, in the cosmos, in the world, Jesus reigns supreme. He holds the highest place. Everything is below him. And he is, he, everything is in submission to him. Jesus is the one, as we'll see later, who holds it all together and is before all things, right? So this is Jesus. And so in thinking this way, that he is reigning supreme, does he reign supreme in your life? Right, because, because right, it's not that Jesus isn't supreme. It's not that Jesus ever stops being supreme, meaning that just because we don't live as if Jesus is supreme, as if Jesus is Lord, never takes away the fact that he is reigning and that he is supreme and that he is Lord. What's the difference? The difference is that we are in rebellion to God when he is not supreme in our life when he is not the thing that matters most, when he is not the reason why we live and the reason why we love and the reason why we serve and the reason why we sacrifice is because we see who Jesus is. You see, when Jesus is supreme, when Jesus reigns over everything, our life looks so different. Our lives look way different and everything makes sense. You see, it's kind of a trick question because he does reign supreme, right? But Are you actually living in submission to the king of kings, or are you in rebellion today? And some of you may say, I'm not in rebellion, but I would ask you, what parts of your life have you not submitted to the Lord? What parts of your life are you holding on to that, you know, I heard one pastor say is that he talks about strongholds in people's lives. And, and so people think a stronghold would be something like super spiritual or whatever. But he said a stronghold is something that you can't live without. Meaning, fill in the blank, right? If I don't have this, as long as I have this, everything will be okay. As long as I have this job, everything will be okay. As long as I have this money in my account, everything will be okay. As long as I can keep doing this, everything will be okay. And if that is not Jesus, if you can't answer that with Jesus, if you're not willing to lose all for Jesus and have nothing compared to Jesus, then these things are reigning over Jesus' place in your life. Not in general, but just you have placed them there in rebellion out of disobedience. 
You see, before GPS or phones, right, people would navigate by the stars or by a compass, right? If you're, you go hiking in the woods and your GPS runs out, like if you have a map and you have a compass, you can probably figure out where you're supposed to go, right? But when you're using a compass, you must find true north. You must figure out where is north and then you can go from there. Where is the pinpoint? Where is the standard? And then once you figure out that standard, then everything else will make sense. You won't be wondering and thinking you're heading in the right direction and then you're complete opposite direction or going circles, but instead you'll be able to get exactly where you were supposed to be going all along. And so in the same way, right, is that in your life is Jesus your true north. How long have you been walking aimlessly where your spiritual growth has been stagnant? How long have you been walking aimlessly where your emotional growth has just been stagnant, right? You may have had more money. You may have gotten newer cars. You may have fill in the blank, but spiritually, you are either still a baby or you are dead in your sins. Why? Because Jesus has never been true north, but instead, you've been walking aimlessly with no stand in your life, nothing other than yourself, right, going back to you have been number one in your life. You have been supreme. It's all about you and what you have put in your life and not where we should be as Christians where Jesus reigns supreme. And if he is our true north, then when we follow him, everything else falls into place. When Jesus is our priority, everything falls in place. This is why he says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where money is going to come from. Don't worry about any of those things for your father knows what you need before you ask, but rather just seek Jesus. And this is what Paul is so adamant in this, in this text today. You see, when Jesus is in his place, when you're not living in rebellion, when you're not living in disobedience, you will never be the same. You will grow more and more into his likeness because the Bible tells us the Bible tells us, right, last week we talked about when we're beholding Jesus, the Spirit changes us from one degree of glory to the next, and he's renewing us, and he's doing what he's supposed to do, but our eyes must be fixed on Jesus in order for that to happen. And so let's go to verse 16. It says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You see right here, Jesus created everything. He is the one by whom this world was created. Therefore, he is called the word, right? In the beginning was the word, right? And when God spoke, the earth came to being, right? When God spoke, right, everything then existed. And so Jesus is what we're saying. Paul is telling us that Jesus was the one by whom everything that we see on this world was created. So he cannot be created for he is the creator, right? So you're like, why is this important? Because many religions, many false religions will try to lower the supremacy and the importance of Jesus when as, Christ, as true Christians, Jesus is the thing that matters most. And if you don't get Jesus right, Christianity doesn't work out right. And then you're frustrated. You're like, I tried Christianity. I tried doing that and it didn't work out. Why? Because Jesus was never the true north. Jesus was never the standard. Jesus was never supreme in your life. It was yourself or the God that you created. But we see here that Jesus was never created. 
We were created for him. The world was created for him. Authorities, governments, everything was created for him and by him. And so because of this, we were never made to live for ourselves. Before you were saved, yeah, do whatever you want. You didn't know any better. But if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, if you identify as a Christian, then what life looks like is that nothing matters anymore except Jesus. It's no longer what do I think. It's no longer what does the world think. It's no longer what does Google think. It is no longer what experts say. It's what does Jesus say, and that's how I'm going to live my life. What does Jesus say about this, and that's how I'm going to make this decision. So we see that it's all about Jesus. So is Jesus, your true north. Is Jesus the one who's most important in your life? Because when you live for yourself, you live in rebellion to God. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right here, Christ is eternal. Right, he was here before anything was created. Christ has always existed. He was never created, he created. Nothing existed before him, and he has always been and always will be. And this is why Paul tells us that he holds all things together. And this is, I wanna sit here for a little bit today. You see, Jesus is the great sustainer. Jesus is the one who's holding the world together. Whether you are in rebellion or not, Jesus is still holding your life together. Jesus is still holding this world from collapsing. Jesus is in complete control of everything. You see, without Jesus, this world will crumble and fall apart. But Jesus is actively involved in this world and in your life. You see, there is a false belief out there, I think it's called deism, where essentially, like I said earlier, God created the world, created these rules and these boundaries, you know, the laws that we, you know, of, of nature and so forth, right? He created it, and then he just left it. He, like, spun it, and then it's just going, and then he walked away, right? And that's this belief that God is not truly active, that God is not working, that God is not holding all things together. But Paul is saying, there's no way as a Christian you can believe in that, that God is just doing his own thing and then letting you do your own thing and not, you know, being in control of everything. But Paul's saying, no, he is holding it all together. He is the one sustaining it. He is the one holding your world together right now. And this is good news. Why? Because have you ever been out of control of something? Have you ever felt that when nothing is going the way that you intended it to? Where your plans aren't working out the way you thought they were? where you thought you'd be better by now. You thought you'd be further along by now. You thought you'd have more money by now. You thought that whatever it was was going to be better than what it is right now. And so nothing is in your hands. And you think you're holding it. You think you're holding it all together. But really, truthfully, everything is just falling apart. And you just feel like you're grabbing anything and everything. My son, uh, his name's Elisha, and he is three years old. And anytime we go on a car ride, he always wants to bring toys. It's always too many. Like, he wants to bring, like, every toy that he has, but not in a basket, not in a little thing, but he wants to try to carry them all in his hands. And so he goes and he picks up, like, five toys, but then he sees another toy. So he goes over and he picks it up, but then when he leans over, this toy falls out. And so then he's frustrated, and then he picks up that toy, and then the toy he just picked up falls out, and then he picks up that one 
one and then three fall out. And then he's so frustrated because he's like getting mad. I'm like, Elisha, like, let me help. I'll say, do you need help? And then he'll be like, ah. And I'm like, Elisha, do you need help? And then he'll say, help. And then I grab the toys. I hold them and we make it to the car and then I throw it on them. (laughs) And I'm like, here, here's your 10 toys. But how many times in our life are we exactly the same? Or we're trying to hold our life together. We're trying to hold our family together. We're trying to hold our business together, our job together, our life together. And every time that we think we're so close and things are going to work out exactly the way we think they're going to work out, what happens? Something else falls out. And we try to pick that up and fix it and something else falls out. And we try to pick that up and then three more things fall out. And then we find ourselves in a place where we're like, God, where are you? But the problem wasn't that God was never there. What was it? The problem is that we thought we could do it all by our own power, our own strength, our own might, our own wisdom, and never looking to our true north, never looking to the one who reigns supreme, never looking to the one who holds the world together and saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I can't handle my family on my own. Jesus, I can't bring my family back together. Jesus, I can't fix this at my job. Jesus, I can't hold this. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's the point is that you were never created to live independently of Jesus. You were created for Jesus. Everything was created by him and for him. And when you start living dependent on Jesus, then you will start to see your world be exactly the way that it should be. I'm not saying you're going to get everything that you're asking for because what good parent gives everything their child asks, gives it to them, right? But instead, he knows what's best for us. Why? Because he is before all things. He knows what we need before we even ask. And so there are many things in your life that you are trying to control that you need to stop and let go this morning. There are many areas in your life right now that you are trying to be Jesus, and you're not. You are not Jesus. Here, let me me help you do a little little practice. Just repeat after me. I am not Jesus. One more time. I am not Jesus. Wow, good job, y'all. Look at that. All right, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. You see, Jesus, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, right? So Jesus is the head of the church. We, as the church, are the bride of Christ. And so Jesus loves the church. He died for his church. He is in covenant with his church, meaning he will never give up on his church because that is not who Jesus is. And so we see that he will always be faithful to his bride, even when his bride isn't faithful to him. In East Texas, I'm not, I'm not and it's, it's over the world, but I know in East Texas, there's a lot of, of there was some sort of church that you attended that maybe there's some animosity there. Maybe there's some church hurt in your past 
where a pastor said something, a pastor didn't do something, a church said something, a church didn't do something, a church was supposed to be there, but nobody from the church called, nobody from the church did this, or, or whatever it may be, right? But, but what I want to remind you is that the church, his bride is imperfect, but it doesn't mean that Jesus is not perfect, just because we fail, just because we are humans and we are pursuing the Lord and on mission doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to complete and one day present his bride as blameless and beautiful and pure because that's what he says he's going to do. And so what I tell you today is that, man, if there's this hurt, if there's this, this thing in your life, don't think that that was Jesus. Don't think that that was Jesus. Don't think that Jesus wasn't involved. Don't think that Jesus wasn't trying to hold it all together, but where did I say earlier? It's not, right, the issue is that we don't live in submission. And that pastor may or may not have been in submission. That church member may or may not have been in submission. That church may or may not have been in submission. And so this is why we, as elders of this church, right, this is not my church, Living grace is not mine. The elders, we do not run this church, right? This is Christ's church. And so our job is to come before him humbly and say, God, what do you want for living grace? Jesus, what do you want for this church, for your church? What do you want for your bride that's located at 4727 New Copeland Road? Lord, what do you want? And that's what we want because he knows what this church needs before any other church, right? He knows what we need here and so our job as pastors, my job is not to say my, my way is the only way, but it's to say, Jesus, what do you want? And in the same way, right, is the same mindset that we need to have as individual followers of Christ. Jesus, what do you want for my life? You see, it's all for Jesus, not for me. We are here to worship Jesus, not for it to be about us. And you say, he is the firstborn, meaning he is alive. He is the first to be resurrected. Yes, people came back to life from the dead, but Jesus is the one who conquered death, right? Like Lazarus was brought back from the dead and Jesus raised him, right? And it was miraculous, but then Lazarus died again. But the difference is that Jesus, when he died and he rose again, he now has power over death and now death has no hold on him. And so now he's gonna live forever. And in the same power that raised him from the dead is also gonna bring us back to life. And so we're holding on to, right? Last week we learned that Paul was saying, hey, you're, the reason you love people is coming from your hope for eternal life. And in the same way is that we're trusting that, hey, Jesus, I'm going to live in submission to you. Why? Because you've given me eternal life. Because now I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear what's coming. I don't have to fear this sickness. I don't have to fear this brokenness. I don't have to fear anything because I know that this world will eventually be gone. And instead, I will be with you forever. And so now I can live my life with no fear in saying, if Christ be all, then that's all that matters. And if I live to be for Christ, and if I die, it's gain because I get to see him face to face. <laughs> I told you I was excited. <laughs> you see, we will die, but when we, will, but when we die, we will have resurrected bodies. And if you believe in Jesus, eternal life will be with God and we will be in our glorified bodies. But if those who don't believe in Jesus, right, is 
what's waiting for them, right? We have eternal life, but they have eternal destruction waiting for them and torment. And this is why our job is not to sit here on Sunday morning and just enjoy Jesus and then go about our life as if Jesus isn't Lord, but instead is that we hear that, man, we have been, as we'll see later, that we have been rescued, that we have been saved, that we've been brought from death to life. And so now we should want everybody to know about this. We should want everybody to know, hey, I know you think you don't deserve Jesus. I know you think you you shouldn't be in church. I know you think you've done all this wrong, but let me tell you about my Jesus who paid it all. My Jesus who took your sin and reconciled you back to the Father and nailed the debt that you had on the cross. And so now it's no longer you have to work hard, but instead it's you believe and then you live in submission and then you have eternal life waiting for you. And then the beautiful, the best thing is this, is that, man, that life starts here is that that new life starts here, that you can get to know Jesus here, and you live life differently here, because why? Our eyes are not fixed on this world, on the things we can see, but instead we fix our eyes on what we can't see. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This verse right here emphasizes the incarnation of Jesus, right? So in, in the Old Testament, God dwelled among the Israelites via the tabernacle. Essentially, there was this huge tent where, all the, where they would make their sacrifices. But in the middle of this huge tent was what was called the Holy of Holies. And the only person who had access to the Holy of Holies was the high priest. And so when Jesus came, when he incarnated, when he died the death that we deserve to die, is that now he tore that. And now we get to, have, we have, the Bible tells us we have full confidence to the Father to be able to access him and to, to speak with him and to spend time with him in his presence without fear of being destroyed, but instead is that now we know him as Father, and not just as God above, but we know him as a loving Father. And Jesus calls us friend, and he says, I no longer call you servants, but now you're a friend. And so we have so much access to the Father, and so what this is saying is that Jesus was the one who became where we don't need somebody to talk to God for us. We don't have to have a high priest. We don't have to go to somebody else and say, hey, can you talk to God for me? But instead, we have full access to the Father because we are sons and we are daughters of the Lord Most High. And so Jesus is the one who tabernacled among us. He is the one who dwelled among us. He lived among us. And so then this Jesus who understands what it means to be tempted, to be hungry, hurt, disappointed, broken, backstabbed, betrayed, hated, and yet never sinned. Why? Because of the cross set before him, right? The Bible talks about in the, in the gospels how his face was set on Jerusalem. He was so ready to die for us. He was so ready to give us access to the Father. He was so ready to come and live among us and to experience temptation and loss. And, and you name something you've gone through, Jesus went through it as well and far worse and yet never sinned. And yet in the same way we now get to experience this relationship that he had with the Father. Why? Because he lived among us. Because he was incarnated and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we see here that now through Jesus, through supreme Jesus, through Jesus who reigns over everything, we have been reconciled, meaning there's no longer animosity. There's no longer God is angry at you. There's no longer God is done with you. There's no longer any sort of punishment waiting for you. Jesus, through his death on the cross, took that punishment for you, right? Because we were we who were supposed to have relationship with God, but it was severed back in the garden. And so we were born in sin and under sin's dominion. We were by nature, the Bible tells us, children of wrath. We were enemies to the cross of Christ. We were in rebellion against God. We were dead in our sins, but Christ through his death and his resurrection, we now have life. Through believing in Jesus, you can have restoration with God above. You can have this relationship. You don't need to go in, in once a year, but instead you can come any day you want and have this relationship with the Father. And so we must come to him with our sin, that today that you would understand that Jesus paid it all. And so this morning, wherever you're at, whatever your week look like, whatever sins you're trying to hide, whatever sins you've never confessed in your life because you think that you just swept them on the rug and God will forget about them, I say bring those to the cross this morning. Bring those to Jesus. Bring everything to Jesus knowing he paid for all the sin on the cross. And this is why he said, it is finished. You don't have to clean yourself. Come as you are. Come broken. Come dirty. Come sinful. Because that's how he wants you. Then once we acknowledge our sins and believe that he is the only way and then live in submission to him, we have eternal life. And he wants and he will present us blameless and holy before God one day. And that's the good news is that we had nothing without Jesus. I don't care what accolade you accomplished in life. I don't care how much money you have. I don't, none of that matters when it compares to Christ because those are temporal. Those are things that will be burned up. You can go bankrupt. You can lose everything, but with Jesus, you have everything. So if you have nothing according to the world, it doesn't matter because we have everything in Jesus. And so the last verse that we'll talk about today, verse 23 says this, because Paul, Paul mentions all that good stuff, but then he mentions this last part. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's an old, old, old book called Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorite books. Love is is written by a guy named John Bunyan in the 1600s, and he was a pastor, writer, preacher. Preacher, but he was arrested for preaching uh, when he wrote this, and he was arrested for preaching without the king's permission. It was a little crazy back in the day, um, and so in prison he wrote this book. Didn't have a Bible, didn't have anything, and it's just this amazing book, 
packed with scripture. But Pilgrim's Progress is what we call a Christian allegory, meaning it has a meaning on the surface, and, and it's the story of this guy named Christian who, who walks along and, and he battles, you know, like um, he, he's leaving the city of destruction, he journeys to a place called the Celestial City, and he encounters roadblocks and fearsome creatures, and it's kind of like, you know, fantasy adventure type feel. But below that, what most people may miss is that it is definitely the story of the Christian life. And so Christian finds himself along this journey, and he ends up at this place called the Interpreter's House. And don't worry, it's not a spoiler alert, so you're okay. You can go read it. But um, as he gets there, it's this waypoint where Christian will receive instruction regarding the struggles of the Christian life. So he goes there and he shows them these different rooms and these rooms were different scenes of, of what was coming his way and what I want you to know is coming your way as part of the struggles of being a Christian. Because if you hear anybody say, hey, if you become a Christian, everything disappears, that is furthest from the truth. Or this is why James says, count it pure joy when you face trials, right, of many kinds. Why? Because those, those trials will help your faith to grow even more. But more than that is you see Jesus on a deeper level and you see that he was with you the whole time. And so the more trials, the more Jesus is what you get. And there was even great heroes of the faith that enjoyed any suffering they went through, not because they enjoyed being to suffer, but they knew that they would see Jesus on a deeper level. And so here he gets to the interpreter's house and he goes in this room and he ends up in this one room and he walks in and there's this fire burning on the wall. So there's this, just imagine on this wall, huge fire going. And so there's this guy who walks up and he has this bucket of water and just seems like an unlimited amount of water. And he keeps trying to throw the water on the fire and throw the water on the fire and trying to put it out and trying to put it out. But then the interpreter shows him that there's, and the fire would never go out. The fire would never disappear. And you would assume fire would disappear with water, but there was somebody behind the wall who was throwing oil on the fire. And so every time the water would be thrown, that fire would grow even greater. And so every time water was thrown, the fire would grow even hotter and fire would throw even hotter. And what the interpreter is getting at is trying to show us is that here in this is that Jesus is the one who's throwing oil on the fire because the enemy is the one who wants to put out their fire for the Lord and he wants to put it out and he wants to choke it and he wants for you to not enjoy being a Christian. And so he's trying to put it out. So you come to Sunday and you feel like, man, oxygen coming and wood was thrown on the fire and man, I can conquer the world. And then boom, you get to Monday and then you meet your boss or you see that coworker or you go back home and you have to talk to that family member or you get cut off on the road. Whatever it was is that then he uses that, right? Or you go to the doctor or you go whatever. These things that come up in life and the enemy wants to use that to try to to try to dwindle your faith, but instead is that what's going on is that Jesus is there all of long, right, pouring oil on the fire. And what that oil represents is grace. And so every time that the enemy wants to try to choke you out, there's more grace. And every time the enemy wants to try to remind you that you're not enough, there's grace that reminds you that that was the point and that now Jesus is enough for you. And so here in this story, Jesus Christ is God's grace. And when the New Testament speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not thinking primarily of something, but rather it's about someone who's given to us. 
right? We've been given grace, and that grace comes through Jesus. And so the grace is in Christ, and the grace of Christ is in Christ. And so this is why the gospel invitation is not come and receive grace. I'm not telling you to come and you'll get grace this morning. Come and grace will sustain you. What I'm telling you is to come and see Jesus, to come and get Jesus, and Jesus will be the one that will sustain you. Christ is the one who won't let that fire burn out. Christ is the one who, no matter what the enemy throws at you, is he makes your desires burn hotter, and that's the goal, right? The goal is that when you suffer, you don't forget about Jesus. When you suffer, you cling harder and stronger to Jesus, knowing all along what? That Jesus is holding on to you, and it's not even when you have nothing left to hold on to, Jesus is still holding you. Why? Because he is the one who's holding the world together. And he is before all things. And he is able to reconcile all things. And Jesus is the one that we're looking to. Right? So no matter life's circumstances, Jesus keeps throwing more and more and more oil on your fire for him. Because he will not let that flame burn out. And in those moments when you think you have nothing left, you still sense a little bit, and that's Jesus pouring oil on that fire. So you cuss out your boss, there's grace, right? You give in to sin, there's grace. You lose to the temptation, there's grace. You look at pornography, there's grace. You don't pursue Jesus, there's still grace. You don't love your neighbor, there's still grace. But you could also put it like this. You cuss out your boss, you still have Jesus, you give in to sin, Jesus is still there. You lose your temper, Jesus is patient with you. You look at porn, Jesus is there and is more satisfying than any sort of thing this world can conjure. You don't love your neighbor, Jesus loves you. So we see that no matter what happens is that Jesus is still there. And this is not a license to sin. This is not saying, well, then let me just go sin because Paul says, you know, he's quoting some guy who's trying to be a fool. He says, should we sin so that grace can abound? And he says, by no means, right? But instead is what I want you to see is how great Jesus is because when you see that, nothing compares to him. When you see how great Jesus is, no sin has power anymore. When you're a Christian, our sinful nature was cut off. We no longer have to lose to our temptations. We no longer have to give in to sin because it's lost its power through Jesus. And so I want you to see that no sin, no temptation can measure up. I want you to see that he's the one who's holding it all together so you don't have to. I want you to see Jesus because when you do, when he saves you, everything changes. Nothing is the same. Nothing measures up to Jesus or will measure up to knowing Jesus. Nothing is better than Jesus. Nothing can conquer Jesus. And this Jesus who is supreme, who is before all things, who holds all things, and everything is created for him and by him. This Jesus loves you. And that is such good news. That is such good news. Like, if that doesn't make you want to get as excited as I am right now, like, you may not know Jesus, and I want you to know him because you can't hold your world together. You can't fix your family. You can't beat this sin on your own. You can't beat whatever it is that you think you can handle. You can't clean yourself up on your own. You can't fix these things on your own. None of these things can happen without Jesus. And Jesus is freely offered to you this morning. You see, this Jesus wants you. This Jesus wants you to be a part of his kingdom. Then when temptation comes, 
when that fire you had for Jesus starts to weaken, know that his grace is sufficient for you. Know that you don't need another drink. You don't need more money. You don't need a new car. You don't need another girl. You don't need whatever it is that you think you need in order for your world to not crumble. You don't need it. You need Jesus. Know that nothing can conquer his grace. Nothing can put that fire out. Jesus reigns over all. And so the question that you really have to wrestle with is, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? Is he enough for you or do you want Jesus and money? Is Jesus enough for you? You want Jesus and this. Right, because the goal would be that you just say, I just want Jesus, and if nothing works out the way that I intended it, that's okay, because I have Jesus. And he's holding the world together, and he knows what I need. And so what I'm imploring for you to know today is this, is that Jesus is enough. And that's my heart for you. If we want to be the church that Christ intends for us to be, then like Paul, we have to place Jesus as supreme. Jesus has to be in the number one spot. It has to be everything for Jesus. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.